Welcome to Traveling Culturati, where we explore cultures and share travel news, travel tips, destinations, and travel chats. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Well, hey there, fellow Culturati. Javon Harley here, your host and travel pro for Traveling Culturati. Welcome back to another week of travel news, travel tips, and travel chats. My favorite subject. We are already in the middle of October, and I just can't believe that we're in the fourth quarter of the year. Where did the time go? Healthcare professional Yolanda Como has returned with another installment of Staying Healthy While You Travel. Today, it's about the monkeypox, what you should know, and how to stay safe. We'll also have Javon's Travel Minute, and the culture report goes underground. But now, it's time for some travel news. United Airlines recently announced it will suspend service later this month to New York's John F. Kennedy Airport. Earlier, United had threatened to take action if the FAA did not grant the air carrier additional flights. United has been flying just twice daily to San Francisco and Los Angeles from JFK, the busiest New York area airport, after resuming service in 2021. United stated, given our current too small to be competitive schedule out of JFK, coupled with the start of the winter season, where more airlines will operate their slots as they resume JFK flying, United has made the difficult decision to temporarily suspend service at JFK, United said in a memo seen by Reuters. The airline did not specify when it might resume service. United said its discussions with FAA have been constructive, but added, it's also clear that the process to add additional capacity at JFK will take some time. United said the decision would impact 100 employees who work at JFK, but emphasized that no one is losing their job and employees will just transition to another station nearby. The FAA said it is dedicated to doing its part to safely expand New York City airports and airspace capacity. We will follow our fair and well-established process to award future slots to increase competition. United said without permanent slots, it cannot serve JFK effectively compared to the larger schedules and more attractive flight times flown by JetBlue and American Airlines. United in 2015 struck a long-term deal to lease 24 year-round slots at JFK to Delta Airlines as it ended JFK service to concentrate at its nearby Newark hub in northern New Jersey. United argues there is room to grow at JFK, the 13th busiest U.S. airport, because the FAA and the Port Authority since 2008 have made significant infrastructure investments, including the widening of runways, construction of multi-entrance taxiways, and the creation of aligned high-speed turnoffs. There's a little-known city in Mexico that is now booming and becoming one of the most popular destinations in the country. As a previously undiscovered city that had never been heavily pushed as a destination, takes center stage as part of the country's tourism offer, it appears that Mexico has a new star in the making. It lacks shoreline, therefore it has no immaculate beaches like those in the Caribbean, nor are there any Mayan ruins on the Yucatan Peninsula, but it is quickly rising to the top of the list. 
of favorite vacation spots that's south of the border. Surprisingly, though, the majority of tourists to Mexico continue to underestimate just how cosmopolitan and diverse the country actually is or did until this year. Mexico is so much more than a sunny beach break. Fortunately, things are changing and visitors, including those from the United States, are starting to travel further interior as opposed to remaining secluded in one of the enormous tourist resorts on the Riviera Maya. Mexico's historic cities, many of which are protected by UNESCO as World Heritage Sites, are in the vanguard of the country's tourism renaissance. One of them, the unheralded Guanajuato. It's been crushing arrival numbers since it's incredibly breathtaking and also has its own international airport, which makes it easier to get to. The city is unique and has been chosen as the best city in the world by travel and leisure in 2021 and 2022. A surprising figure for a non-coastal city that, for the most part, hasn't been a priority for Mexican tourism. According to Juan Jose Alvarez Brunel, Secretary of Tourism of Guanajuato, by the year end of 2022, the city is expected to recover about 70% of its tourists. So what's so spectacular about this emerging city? Well, there are direct flights from a number of American cities, including Houston, Dallas, Los Angeles, and Chicago, from both Midway and O'Hare airports. There are numerous hotel chains and small lodging establishments, numerous hot springs, spas, and wellness facilities that can compete with the Mayan world, famous for dining establishments, and of course, if there are any nature enthusiasts there, the state contains 20% of the nation's natural protected areas, which are home to 45% of the nation's bird species. As wellness travel is on the rise, the points guy has given his opinion of the top luxury hotel spas for every type of traveler. Travel for wellness has increased significantly in recent years as people's attention has increasingly turned to their physical and mental well-being. According to a survey from the Global Wellness Institute, the business is expected to generate $817 billion this year and will reach a staggering $2.3 trillion by 2025. So let's start it off. The Ritz-Carlton Reserve, Mandapa, has the best jungle. Bali has developed as a haven for individuals looking for a spiritual fix or to hone their downward dog. <laughs> I think we can thank Julia Roberts for that. But the Mandapa Spa is located in the center of the island, close to the cascading rice terraces of Ubud and the tranquil Ayung River. The spa is a location where a Balinese healer can attend to every discomfort and pain that one might have. It's also surrounded by palm trees, jungle ferns, and the sounds of the rainforest. The best mountain spa is Six Senses Paro, and this is located in Bhutan in the Himalayan mountains. Equinox Hotel Spa is the best for fitness, and you'll find it in New York. Four Seasons Safari Lodge Serengeti offers the best cultural body treatments in Tanzania and family-friendly resort Grand Waialea Maui in Hawaii. Now the online passport renewal has a successful test run, but it's been halted because of its overwhelming demand. 
The U.S. State Department tested its online passport renewal service in September. The service reached its monthly quota of 25,000 participants and was shut down after almost 24 hours, stating, we are temporarily closing down the online renewal service to new clients and expect to reopen it again in October, the company stated in a post on its website. The State Department did, however, announce that a new run of the program will begin in October while they are announcing the program's closure owing to limit being met. Updates will be posted on their site by mid-October. For more information, you can visit MyTravelGov, which is on the travel.state.gov website. The following are the prerequisites for applying for the program. You have to be 25 years of age or older, and your most recent passport has had a 10-year validity period. Your most recent passport was issued less than 15 years ago than the date you intend to submit your application or more than nine years ago. If your passport is out of date, your name, gender, birthplace will remain the same. You won't be traveling abroad for at least five weeks after submitting your application. You're requesting a standard tourist passport. You are an American citizen. You are in possession of your passport, which is undamaged and unaltered and which hasn't been reported lost or stolen in the past. A credit or debit card payment that transfers money from your account can both be used to pay for your passport. One's digital passport photo can be uploaded. You are aware that when you submit your application, your most recent passport will be instantly invalidated or canceled, making it impossible for you to go abroad. So don't start the process or submit it if you're not certain you want to do it because once you do, your passport that's currently in your possession will be invalidated. And once again, to reiterate, you're not traveling for at least five weeks when you submit. Now we're always on the lookout for the best and worst U.S. airports for traveler satisfaction. Well, we have that list for 2022. It's been identified by a recent study. Each year, J.D. Powers completes this study and assigns an airport satisfaction score out of 1,000. This year saw a 25-point overall decline from 2021, most likely because of the hectic travel conditions during the summer. It's interesting to note that in 2021, travelers' happiness with airports reached an all-time high, probably as a result of the pandemic's reduced passenger traffic. This year, airports have been under pressure due to the extreme demand and widespread labor shortages, which has decreased traveler satisfaction overall. So here are some of the key findings in the 2022 study. Crowds back to pre-pandemic levels. Overall, customer satisfaction with North American airports falls 25 points to 777 this year amid rampant flight cancellations and crowded terminals. More than half of airport travelers describe the airport terminal as severely or moderately crowded, nearly in line with 2019 when 59% of the travelers said their airport was severely or moderately crowded. Inflation hits the airports. Nearly one-fourth of travelers say they did not make any food purchases at the airport because they were too expensive. That's up 20% in 2021 and 23% in 2019. And lastly, nowhere to park. Some big declines in traveler satisfaction this year are found in the parking lot where a shortage of space has caused satisfaction with surface parking lots 
to decline 45 points from 2021. Meanwhile, 14% of travelers say parking was more expensive than they expected, up 12% in 2021 and 11% in 2019. Now, what about airports with the highest and lowest traveler satisfaction? Overall average satisfaction at the best mega airports? The top two were Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport and San Francisco International Airport. Overall satisfaction for the best large airports, Tampa International and John Wayne Airport, Orange County. For medium airports, one in two positions came in with Indianapolis International Airport and Pittsburgh International Airport. And the worst medium airports overall satisfaction ranking, the top two worst were Hollywood Burbank Airport and Kahului Airport. In conclusion, this year, airports have struggled to satisfy visitors. Specifically, it has been challenging to resume full pre-pandemic operations due to a severe staff shortage and a colossal travel demand. So let's see where 2023 brings us with the airlines and airports making assessments and adjustments. Well, that's all I've got for travel news. And when I come back, We'll have Javon's Travel Minute and healthcare professional Yolanda Como with another installment of Staying Healthy While You Travel. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you head on over to the website, TravelingCulturati.com, and make sure you connect with me on social media and join that travel club. We have so much fun on social media, and I absolutely love seeing where you travel to and how you travel. And remember that travel club, we are going places. We've been so many places, and... We are already booking up for 2023 and we're already working on 2024. So you want to make sure that you're connected with us and in the know when we're on the go. And now Javon's Travel Minute. There's always a time where you want to sit and think about gratitude. I'm always grateful for the things that I have. But sometimes you just want to stop and think. And so right now there are five things that I'm grateful for. I received a call from a client recently because she is interested in the trip to Ghana. We recently posted. She shared with me that she went on the trip to South Africa with us in 2019. On that trip, she and another traveler discovered during a conversation they had gone to the same high school at the same time. And after a continued conversation, they remembered each other. They exchanged contact information and have been friends ever since, even have taken other trips together. I'm currently working on many programs for 2023. After two years of the world being shut down in 2020 and partially opened in 2021, many fears and uncertainty, business is now booming. This is when you stop, reflect, and express gratitude for the many wonderful clients, new and returning you have and that your business survived and is prospering. Forever grateful. Number three, to have traveled to Croatia, Dubai, Italy, the Maldives, and Egypt over the last year with groups and all have returned home safely and in good health. 
The fourth thing I'm grateful for is going to New York with a group for a Broadway musical in November. It's been nearly a decade since I've taken a group to New York. I'm even more excited about this one because we've added a Black history component. Very excited and looking forward to the trip and seeing some travelers I haven't seen in years. My fifth and final for now, because I know, again, I'm going to be grateful for another five things very soon. I'm grateful for a new partnership in its development stage to produce wellness travel experiences for the Culturati. Mental and physical wellness is top of mind for many right now. One thing the past two years have taught many of us is that self-care is very crucial to our well-being. But unfortunately, it had been put on the back burner for far too long. So stay tuned for that official announcement. Again, these are just a few things I'm grateful for. I'm forever grateful for the things that this travel industry has afforded me. This is Javon, and that was your Travel Minute. Joining me today is healthcare professional Yolanda Como with another installment of Staying Healthy While You Travel. Well, hello, Yolanda, and welcome back. Hello, Javon. I'm glad to be back. Well, you know what? It's something that we have to keep top of mind these days is to make sure that we are staying healthy when we travel. We have to make sure we're healthy enough to travel. We have to stay healthy while we travel, and we have to stay healthy enough to return home. So what are we talking about today? Well, today we're going to talk about monkeypox. It's another virus that's spreading the world, spreading the country. And currently the CDC is tracking to see what's happening. What is monkeypox about? Currently, that's about just over 11,000 cases that's been reported. In the United States? In the United States, And what about globally? Do we know that? Globally, we do not know the numbers. And I did hear something um, recently, as of today, that a lot of countries, the um, people who are being affected, they're not reporting it. Mm. They're like silent, really, because of politics and policies of those countries. What do we need to know about the disease itself? What is it? It's a rare virus, and it is similar to, I don't know if you remember, smallpox, but it kind of mimics smallpox. In its appearance? In its appearance, yes, and symptoms-wise as well. How does it spread? Well, it can spread through close contact, like personal contact, skin-to-skin contact among a certain uh, population of group of people, specifically here in the United States, that's being affected are people in the LGBTQ community. And they're finding how they are performing sex, and that's how they're contracting it. But it's also known to be contracted infectiously through respiratory-wise. And that's what we're finding out in the medical community. That's come up recently that I've heard, and my facility has been putting flyers out about it and sending communications about respiratory contractions. So we have to wear respirators for that. I remember with COVID, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about COVID as well, because it's still a thing, folks. There was such confusing and conflicting information that initially came out about COVID as far as respiratory, about droplets and how big the droplets are. Is it aerosol? Is it this? How fast it drops to the ground? How close proximity you have to be for it to reach you if someone sneezes or coughs? So, you know, when we say respiratory, are we talking about just a standard sneeze or cough or just someone breathing on you? Do we still have a distance issue? You know, what are we actually talking about? Well, I'm just going to say that that's not known. They're still working on and attracting it. 
I just want to say, like, during COVID, though, it was all new. And it was almost like building the plane while it was flying. So as things were coming up, that's how things were being determined, how one was being contracting and contracting the virus itself. If you were sneezing, if you were standing just face to face with someone rather than six feet away. But depending on how people were contracting the virus, that's how the scientists were determining how people were becoming affected. And yes, if they were sneezing, oh yes, you were standing face to face. No, you were not six feet away. But I think it's the same way here with the monkey posse because a lot isn't known, but they do know that you can contract it through respiratory wise. Okay. But you mentioned something else. And so I want to talk about that a little bit is that COVID was brand new. So we just had to kind of figure things out as they were going along and how does this spread and how does it react and so forth and so on. But monkeypox isn't necessarily new. No, prior to 2022, there were outbreaks of monkeypox being reported in several Western and Central African countries. Previous cases outside the United States within Africa were linked to international travels and the disease commonly occurred through imported animals at that time. So it's human contact with animals, and that's pretty much happening. But it did occur prior to 2022. But is this the first time the outbreak has gained any momentum? Like I said, the CDC is tracking and it's spreading as fast that it's causing an alert for the CDC to start warning people. There's no indication that the continent of Africa is an issue. It's really people and animals. That's the issue and why it's happening. Humans coming into contact with animals that they shouldn't be coming in contact with. And in some cases, it's laboratory involvement. So again, I just want to make sure that we are not making an indication of any sorts with the continent of Africa itself. Right. And we can say that with the covid It was because of animals, the research animals. And somehow the specimens, they came outside of the laboratory. Right. Okay. And viruses are always in the laboratory because scientists are always closely working on them, trying to develop vaccines or medications to treat them, how they can cure them. But sometimes they do, unfortunately, go out of the laboratory. And I'm not sure exactly what happened here. And like you said, the animals are involved. They are the primary carriers of this. But now it's like spreading and affecting humans. Somehow they're getting contracted. So now it's become human-to-human contact. Human-to-human, yeah. So we talked about how it is spread, certainly sexual activity, and certainly with, as you're now saying, with respiratory. What about surfaces, just general contact? Yeah, general contact. If you're touching someone who's a carrier who have monkeypox, you may contract it yourself. If you're touching an item that, like a pillow or blanket or a sweater or shirt or any contents of it that belong to that individual, it may be affected with monkeypox and you can contract it. What about symptoms? Because what I have seen on the news and so forth, visually, you can see once someone is full-blown monkeypox, but mm-hmm. how does it start to present itself? Well, the symptoms come along like smallpox with flu-like symptoms, such as chills, fevers. The individual might begin to see like a rash, and the rash can become so severe they look like pimples or blister-like, pus-like blisters on the body, on the skin. Swollen lymph nodes, you have to see your doctor going to the ER or see your doctor. They can like biopsy your lymph nodes and see what's happening with that if they're swollen. You may become fatigued, not sure what's happening. I mean, like I said, if you ever had the flu, these are clear textbook symptoms that you probably would experience. Body ache, muscle ache, 
headaches, and you may have some respiratory symptoms like some congestion, a cough, and even a sore throat. That's always on the top of the list. So yeah, definitely a rash. The rash is progressive. Okay. So the first symptoms are more or less like the flu-like symptoms and then the rash follows. Now, what about treatment? There is no real treatment, but since the CDC was mentioning that since this virus mimics symptoms of the smallpox, they are using vaccines that they would use for smallpox for the treatment. Prevention. You know, how can we protect ourselves? How can we prevent contracting monkeypox? So definitely you're going to try to avoid any skin-to-skin contact with individuals who have a rash and looks like monkeypox. If they have some scabbing, redness, some blisters, try to avoid kissing, please. Don't do that. Hugging and cuddling and just avoid sex for now. Yikes. <laughs> Wash your hands. Always a plus as often as you can when you can. Use hand sanitizers. Try not to touch your face, your mouth, your lips or anything. I know we're real anxious about touching ourselves or touching our face and putting our hands up to our eyes. Try not to do that. Sometimes it's so habitual. I have that issue that (laughs) I rub my eyes a lot. And when COVID first came out, I was like, stop touching yourself. Right. (laughs) Not in that way, folks. (laughs) Definitely not in that way. But yeah, this is the thing. I mean, you rub or scratch. We all have these habits that we do. But I think one thing we all improved on is washing our hands and hand sanitizer and, you know, those things. Although I think we've all relaxed it a little bit, but we have to make sure that we get back to those habits more vigorously. And, you know, a lot of these habits we picked up with COVID. And so we have to really talk about COVID because it's not a thing of the past. A lot of restrictions, a lot of protocols have been relaxed city to city, state to state, coast to coast, and globally now. But COVID is still a thing. What should we know about COVID today? As a society, we've been dealing with this for what, nearly three years now? Is it? Can you believe it? Three years. But I do believe that we have indeed turned a corner and we're beginning to live our life with the virus. Most people and businesses have returned to their routines, but COVID is still there. But we're dealing with it on a more lax level, so to speak, but we are still taking precautions. Does that mean that it has become endemic? I haven't heard any CDC or World Health Organization or any other public health officials say that it has become endemic, but are we nearing that at least? Yeah, I would have to say, yeah. I do believe that COVID might be here to stay, but probably requiring continue with the testing and possibly annual vaccinations. But it is going to be with us, I'm going to say, longer than what we all anticipated. And so when we say that, has it become endemic? What are we talking about? We're talking about, once again, we're going to learn to live with it. It's going to be in our lives. To be honest with you, even now with people being more relaxed about it, there are still people, myself included, who are taking a lot of precautions, really the same precautions as if it was year one. But I just think that the country, the world, we're still going to be treating it as though it's still there. And we're just learning to live with it. We're learning just like the flu. It's not just like the flu, but how we live with the flu. The things that we do to take those precautions too. So basically it's a virus that has become more predictable that we can live with, but we know it's not going anywhere. So it still exists. They're still going to look for treatment, but there's not a cure for it. 
But it's something we can live with. And hopefully with vaccines that were administered, we're kind of training our bodies to deal with it in a more common way. I think that? that still with more learning about it, there's still a lot of learning about exactly how to treat COVID, how we can avoid COVID. And I do believe that it will come a time where we can say, okay, we can scratch off a list. It's been, you know, eradicated. It's and an over-the-counter yeah, we, over yeah, treatment versus yeah. anything else. Exactly. And yeah, I hope we get to that place sooner rather than later. Now, is it still recommended to get a vaccine? To oh, get absolutely. Vaccinated? Absolutely. If you have not been vaccinated, you should really consider doing that because the virus is going to work differently during the seasons in the fall season, which is coming soon. It might show its face in a different way. A new Probably, variant. Yes, a new variant. How many variants has it been? We've had Alpha, Delta, Gamma, and I can Omicron only remember the current one. And the- That's a- <laughs> so what's being said in the medicine field as far as continued vaccines? Because right now we're on a second booster for most people. Not everyone is eligible for a second booster, but for many, a second booster is highly recommended. Are they working on a third booster? Yes, they are working on a third booster, but it has not been reported that that's going to be the recommendation just yet. And if it is going to be a recommendation, it's probably going to start with senior people in the up in age first, and they will have to look and see if young adults and children and anything just below that would need such a vaccine. But definitely another booster would probably come out in the next few months with the flu vaccine because mm. the flu season would be here shortly as well. And probably with a new variant. Yeah, with the yeah. new variant. Yeah. Well, let's talk about travel restrictions and travel tips because... I have been traveling quite a bit since late 2021 and certainly in 2022 with more trips and travel planned for 2022 and early 2023. And what I've noticed since June and July, in some cases even May of this year, that a lot of, if not all, travel restrictions have been lifted as it pertains to COVID, meaning you don't have to show your vaccine card. You don't have to produce a negative COVID test to enter the country. You don't need to produce a negative COVID test to return to the United States. Many airports here in the United States and on planes have made it optional and no longer mandatory to wear your masks in the airports and on planes. And that varies globally, you know, depending on which country and which airline. Some airlines have taken the stance to say that whatever the policy is for the country you're leaving from and or going to is the policy that the airline will adapt as it relates to masks. And so in more and more cases, you don't need a mask and it's not mandatory. So let's talk about travel tips now that many COVID travel restrictions or protocols have been lifted or rescinded. Well, I think that's great. However, since we're not out of this, I do recommend and I do hope people will continue to take precautions. I personally have not traveled in nearly three years, but when I start back traveling, I will continue to wear my mask. I know you said that they're not requiring proof of vaccination and I think I might even take a COVID test just to make sure that I'm not a carrier. But you still can take your precautions. 
keep your social distance. Keep your distance from people when you're speaking to them, especially if you're not masked or they're not masked. Wash your hands. Continue to wash your hands. I mean, airports and airplanes can be pretty filthy. I mean, if you haven't gotten the booster or boosters, I highly recommend you do that. I mean, if you do want to travel, you just don't know. I mean, yes, they have eased up on the restrictions and all, but that doesn't mean that you should be easing up on you taking your precautions. Yeah, personal decisions and personal care really is what you're talking about. Now, I did get the second booster because, and this was related to travel because they were starting to ask, that your booster was no older than a certain amount of time. And because my last booster was in November, I had surpassed that or was beginning to surpass that. So I had to get another booster. So this was before. And when I say before, I mean, in one case, it was two weeks before they then lifted all restrictions. Now, when I say lifted, here's what you have to be prepared for if you're traveling. They could reinstate them. And they would reinstate them, of course, if things took another turn. So It's very important that if you are considering travel, that you do take these recommendations at heart. And I do think it's a responsible traveler that would get a COVID test. There are many home tests. I know it's not the antigen test, but you can take a home test just before you leave. And I would take them with you as well so that if you're in close contact with other people, especially for group travel, that if you start to feel any symptoms, you take a test and see where you are and isolate yourself from the group if you can. But certainly wearing your mask, I actually started feeling more comfortable with the mask, even as it relates to the flu season, Mm -hmm. because flu season, it can be very deadly as well. It too is a virus. And so wearing a mask and keeping your hands clean is really just good practice regardless. Now, the funny thing is everywhere that I've been, I mean, I've been to Dubai a couple of times. I've been to Croatia. I've been to Fiji. I'm about to go to (laughs) Egypt. But, you know, there's so many places that I've been and I contracted COVID in my hometown. So it's not that travel is the problem. The problem are human beings. and taking those precautions. So I still, and I recommend that you travel with masks, you take them with you, because you still have to be prepared for the odd museum or facility or city or ordinance or anything that comes into play where you may need a mask. I still recommend for myself that I wear my mask when I'm on board the plane. Of course, I take Mm -hmm. it off to eat or drink, but I put my mask back on. Even if I'm dining out here in Chicago and I go to a restaurant, when I go to the restroom, I put my mask on. When I'm at the table, of course, and I'm eating and dining, I don't. And I know you're saying, well, how does that differ? Because I'm on the move. So it differs in a bit. Not shaking hands yet. So those travel tips that were in place before, I think are still very much needed today. So again, Face masks, I recommend two to three per day because you want to change them up. You don't want to be in that same mask all day that you've been touching. You want to make sure that you're bringing hand sanitizer. And what is the alcohol content on that again to make sure that it is working? I think it's 60 to 80%. I think it's like 60%, at least 60% alcohol Mm -hmm. that you have so that it works because some of these designer ones that smell really good (laughs) only have like 30% and you're really not doing anything there. But also your hotel room. And these are things that we talked about long before COVID, right? 
We talked about those high touch surfaces in your hotel room that you want to maybe bring disinfecting wipes. They're best to travel with because anything that you spray aerosols can sometimes be a little tricky traveling with. But if you bring the wipes with you, those high touch areas, when you walk into a room and the first thing you want to touch, you want to sanitize it. Light switches, doorknobs, certainly in the bathroom. Remote control. Very little now are we touching phones because we have our own cell phones, but you may call for room service or you may need to call the front desk. So any of those high touch areas, you want to make sure that you have disinfecting wipes for. And then I also recommend you travel with a couple of COVID tests. That I you did can too. get did. at the pharmacy. I so agree. anything else you want to share? Again, we're talking about monkeypox. We're talking about COVID is still here. And we're talking about staying healthy while you travel. Yeah, just continue to take precautions. I know even though you walk into a business or facility or you're with friends and you're the only one there with the mask on, don't feel silly. Just keep your mask on if you feel comfortable keeping a mask. Nobody's going to, you know talk about you or but who you know cares? berate you or anything yeah I, I feel the same way Javon but I believe a lot of people they f- fall for peer pressure mm-hmm. or to the pressure of I'm not part of the groups if I'm not doing the same well, thing that they're doing. I'm still doing. seeing a number of people wear their mask. I will say to you the last time I flew I saw more people wearing a mask than the previous time Good. I flew so every time there's a new variant that comes out you mm-hmm. see more people wearing the mask. I think it has now become a part of the global culture where it used to be a part of other cultures. A lot of Asian cultures wore masks, not only because of viruses, but for pollution and just protecting their respiratory system. But I think it's now becoming more commonplace and there's nothing wrong with it. And if you're protecting yourself, then you protect yourself. That's all you're doing. That's my recommendation. Protect yourself. Always keep yourself in mind and stay safe and healthy. Well, Yolanda, thank you so much for joining us again today and keeping us healthy while we travel. When I come back, the culture report goes underground. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm Javon Harley, your host and travel pro. The website, travelingculturati.com. Go ahead and check it out. And while you're there, follow us on social media and join the travel club. Culture is forever changing and reflecting what's happening in the society and with its people. It can be born of the arts, food, music, and sometimes politics and strife. This is the Culture Report, and we're going underground underground cities that is the primary reason for underground cities in the ancient world was for protection this protection could have been from other people or from weather it is said that the first underground city was the Derinkuyu underground city in Cappadocia or what is today Turkey it is an ancient multi-level underground city in Turkey extending to a depth of approximately 279 feet. It was not until 1923, after the population exchange between Greece and Turkey, that the underground cities were completely abandoned and then not rediscovered until 1963. The story goes that a resident found a strange room behind a wall inside his house 
and the rest is history. Over time, underground cities have been built around the world, and some have been reopened for tours to understand and visit the past, and others have been rebuilt or built to extend the city below the surface. Actually, all cities have an underground that supports our above-ground needs and existence. We have buried power and information networks, underground water transmission, sewage pipes, malls, basements, pedestrian tunnels, and motorways, and sometimes a subway system. The list goes on. Consider Helsinki. Helsinki is even planning its expansion straight down with a strategic underground city plan that considers the underground as part of the city itself, which the local authorities refer to as the shadow city. You know what comes to mind? Us. Remember that movie? There's like a whole second society of us. Anyway, that was a horror movie. Let's not talk about that. Helsikians already enjoy access to the subterranean swimming complex, shopping area, and hockey rink. A data center has been built beneath a cathedral and uses cold seawater to cool its machines, drastically cutting energy consumption. The plan establishes the construction of a further 200 underground structures in the coming years. This includes apartments and public spaces. More pragmatically, nearly 70% of the world population lives in urban areas. And, according to the United Nations, 2 billion more people will move into cities in the next 20 years. It is probable that the size of the city itself will grow still faster than its demographic growth rate, 276% versus 66%. This is according to some 20 years from now. Such a decoupling is driven by a trend. Urban population growth tends to go hand in hand with rising living standards, which requires more room, larger dwellings or offices, considerable infrastructure provision. From this perspective, cities are potentially going to be jam-packed with construction, especially considering that future city developments are supposed to be and designed to be sustainable. Better standards of living means that we are likely to encourage urban densification and to promote urban agriculture, for example, so that buildable areas are going to become scarce and thus more expensive. So there are two ways to look at this. The first one consists of continuing the growth of high-rise buildings as an adaptation to the scarcity of available space. Just go high, airspace, which may seem sustainable at first sight, but experts say it's not. Says that this option doesn't work because high-rise buildings are usually met with distaste by the people living nearby, and high densities also generate environmental nuisances. The second method experts feel works better. It doesn't try to untie a knot, as they call it, but it cuts it altogether. So why not build downwards instead of upwards? This way, we could meet the demand for more urbanization without erecting skyscrapers everywhere. So let's take a look. Living underground is also a huge environmental and economic issue. As mentioned previously, there are masses of unused underground infrastructure. 
Their ancient quarries, tunnels, shelters, these ancient cities that were built before are still there. They've just been closed off in some cases. Their maintenance costs a lot of money, and it's essential since derelict structures may cause building collapses at the surface. The point is turning a problem into an opportunity, or to put it another way, turning an environmental bad into an environmental good, which is rather rare. Plus, the possibility to dig deeper and create new underground areas. Building and living below the surface is an interesting disruptive alternative and a more sustainable one. Underground spaces are less susceptible to external influences and their impact on the external environment is less than above ground facilities. Deep underground structures suffer significantly less damage during earthquakes than above ground structures. It's not only Helsinki or the well-known underground city of Montreal, which, by the way, is not really a city, but a gigantic mall (laughs) that's underground. But in Japan, China, Norway, the Netherlands, Italy, and France, people are undertaking underground development initiatives. And in China, for example, a recent regulation act provides a legal basis for the development of urban underground spaces. The National Planning Agency of the Netherlands devotes special attention to the good use of underground capacity. And Singapore, which faces severe land constraints, has embarked on a comprehensive master plan for underground development. So for all of these reasons, investors and private operators' interests, as well as mayors' interests, converge to develop underground cities. So whether we like it or not, underground cities will boom in the coming decades. Thus, we'd better get ready to influence the making of these underground cities in the sense of real sustainability. Let's talk about some underground cities that already exist. For example, City Hall Station in New York. So on your next trip to New York City, you can visit the attractions by underground. We don't mean secret, of course, although some of the places on this list certainly seem so from San Francisco speakeasies to the back way into New York City's City Hall Station. Then there's Seattle, Washington. Underneath present-day Pioneer Square, you'll find abandoned streets and office buildings, even a beauty parlor. They're remnants of the first Seattle, built in 1851, then destroyed by 1889, a great Seattle fire. Afterward, mud covered the town, so locals built an eight-foot retaining wall and paved over the destruction, raising the street level 22 feet. Today, underground Seattle lies beneath. To see it, you'll have to buy a ticket for Bill Spidel's underground tour. In San Francisco, the downtown hosts a number of historic basement speakeasies, particularly near Jackson Square and along Columbus Avenue. For example, Bourbon and Branch, operated by J.J. Russell's Cigar Shop during Prohibition. And in Washington, D.C., San Francisco may be a city of bars, but the nation's capital is one of museums. Below DuPont Circle, in tunnels originally constructed for Washington, D.C.'s 1940s streetcar system, there's an art gallery, DuPont Underground. In the 1960s, the space briefly served as a fallout shelter. But today, it houses rotating exhibits. Unlike most D.C. area attractions, DuPont Underground is not free. The space hosts a wide variety of events from concerts to yoga, so admission will vary. 
Non-event viewing is available Wednesday, Thursday, and Saturday afternoons. Then there's Chicago. Headways don't often make must-see attraction lists for good reason because they're boring, but that's not the case in Chicago. For starters, it's under and not above ground. The buildings on top control what the pedway looks like below, so every so many feet it completely changes. Of course, there are shops. 22 Victorian stained glass windows lie underneath Macy's. A mural in the Millennium Park section shows actor Heath Ledger dressed as the Joker from Batman, riding his motorcycle across town. Chicago was the inspiration for Batman's Gotham City and parts of Christopher Nolan's movie Dark Knight, actually filmed in the Pedway. And I can tell you, in the winter months, it is a nice reprieve from the windy city as that cold Arctic air (laughs) blows in. Yes, so there are many underground. And as I mentioned, let's talk about some internationally. As I mentioned, Montreal, Canada. Yes, there's an entire mall underneath the city. And when I started with the first known in Cappadocia, that is still open for tours as well in Turkey. And then there's the salt mine in Krakow, Poland. I visited a salt mine in Austria, which was quite interesting. But yes, the salt mines of Krakow, Poland is one that you can visit as well. So whether it's for history, exploration, shopping, or nightlife, or maybe 20 years from now, an entire city, the next time you visit a city, you might want to go underground. Well, that's it for the show today. Wherever you go, go with all your heart. Confucius. Ladies and gentlemen. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Ladies and gentlemen.